Welcome back to Power Hour. Thank you for joining us. It is Monday, the 17th of March. And what a big time this is from the standpoint of the news. And I just love having James Corbett join us every other Monday on the program. He is an independent listener-supported alternative news source. That's the Corbett Report. It operates on the principles of open source intelligence. He has been living and working in Japan since 2004. He started the Corbett Report in 2007, which is an incredible, wonderful, independent critical analysis of politics, society, history, and economics. You can see so much on his website. He also writes for The International Forecaster, theinternationalforecaster.com. And we're so thrilled to have him join us today, CorbettReport.com. Thank you so much, James, for joining us in the Power Hour today. I appreciate it, as always, Joyce, and I'm going to have to write a shorter form version of that intro for you because it's always such a mouthful. But uh, I'm great, glad, glad to be here talking to your audience, as always. Okay, you write for me all the good things you want me to say, and I'll do it. I, I can't even. I'm blushing ear to ear just listening to all of that, so... <laughs> <laughs> no, but you are. You do write. That's important. You know, you're a partner video producer for Boiling Frogs Post. Um, and also, of course, the International Forecaster, which we have grown to love and respect, as well as the Corbett Report. Well, let's start off with what is in your um, sort of the sites that you have right now on the world and what's happening. What are you most concerned about now? Well, uh, I can't say I'm most concerned about, but I have to say that I I am also intrigued and fascinated by this Malaysian Airlines story. And I know there are people out there who are sick of hearing about it and people out there who are wondering if this is some type of distraction from some sort of quote-unquote real issue. And I can't really... I can't really say anything about that criticism because I've used it before when I've seen too much attention going on issues of seemingly little uh, little relevance. But I, I must admit, it's just a fascinating little mystery that they've spun for us here. And uh, definitely some people are hiding something. It's just a question of who is hiding what. And there's a lot of questions coming out right now about the Malaysian government itself and how much it has known and when did it know it and why it isn't sharing much of that information, etc., etc. But... I, I don't know, again, anything more than what uh, what you and your listeners know, especially I know you talked about this last hour, but I just, for one, do find the at least the possibility that is now being openly talked about in the mainstream corporate-controlled media uh, about the idea that this was cyber hijacking, that there was a remote control um, a- aspect to what, what may have happened there. I find that fascinating, especially because, of course, I see that through the, the framework and the lens of what happened on September 11th, 2001. And this is something that I've talked about on my program before. Um, I've interviewed people talking about um, the possibility that the, uh, the planes on September 11th were being remote controlled. And uh, for example, I, I talked to one 9-11 researcher named Aidan Monahan specifically about the uh, the turning arc of uh, of one of the planes coming into the World Trade Center that was uh, that was too perfect for any human being to have accomplished. An absolutely perfect uh, turn that was accomplished without any correction whatsoever to come exactly level with the World Trade Center right before impact. So um, that, that type of evidence um, is fascinating. And when you connect that in with all of the stories about technology that was being developed and tested right there in the months prior to 9-11. There is a fascinating story to be told there, and that's exactly, in fact, what I'm going to be talking about in this week's Boiling Frogs Post uh, eye-opener video report that comes out on Tuesdays on my website and on BoilingFrogsPost.com, so people can look forward to that. But I can give you a, a sneak preview if you're interested. 
Okay, please do. <laughs> well, I, I, I mean, just as just as one piece of this puzzle, and there are there really are a lot of different pieces that connect in here, but just as one piece, it should be noted that in August of 2001, uh, i.e. just one month before 9-11, uh, Raytheon uh, successfully flew uh, and landed a Federal Express 727 passenger jet six times on a military base in New Mexico. Uh, this was done completely with remote control, without a pilot on board. They flew and landed the plane six times consecutively. And uh, and it should be noted that there were several Raytheon employees who happened to be on the um, some of the hijacked 9-11 flights. And, uh, and that's, again, that's just one of those connections that come in and involve such things as Dov Zakheim, who was the, pre- uh, the executive, chief executive of a company that was a subsidiary to a company that worked on technology to control planes by uh, remote and to blow them up if need be um, for, for military testing purposes. Um, and it, it just keeps getting more and more convoluted and bizarre. So I'm going to try to put this all into my report tomorrow, but it's just a, a fascinating story. And, and so it's interesting for me to see the idea of cyber hijacking now finally being admitted in the mainstream, um, maybe 11, 12 years too late, but still at least they're, uh, they're starting to broach the subject. James, I just wanted to ask you a quick question. You said that that was a FedEx flight uh, that Raytheon had done remote control. Do we know the model of the aircraft? It was a 727. I don't know anything more specific than that. Um, okay. I have, uh, there's a, the link that I'm using on this is a his, History Commons link. So if people go to historycommons.org and uh, just type in large passenger jet flown by remote control, um, that will that will bring it up. And they have the links to the Associated Press and Der Spiegel articles on which this is based. This um, scenario is now coming down to terrorism, terrorism, terrorism. And I think we've watched this sort of dialogue into terrorism. You know, they've ruled out everything else, and now they've said, well, it's going to be like 9-11. To me, though, when we've heard them talking about certain issues here, like, for instance, they can't uh, pick up radar below 5,000 feet, uh, that's not true. Military radar does pick it up. What they're doing is they're kind of showing that 9-11 didn't happen the way they said because they'll say things like, well, we couldn't follow the planes in 9-11 because the transponder was off. Well, they can because they have military radar to follow them. Are you not seeing that perhaps this is working against or at least working for uh, the admission of 9-11 issues that nobody wants to talk about? Well, yes, absolutely. In fact, I, that really did strike me, especially yesterday when I was reading a lot more about this military radar and primary radar and tracking issues. And, and uh, there's a lot of criticism coming out now about specifically the Malaysian government and the Malaysian military not being able to track these this flight. Um, or at least not being forthcoming with their knowledge of, of, of the issue. And, and it really did strike me, the, uh, the double standard here, that this is, of course, exactly the issues we would expect, not of one, not of two, not of three, but of four hijackings that took place in, in over the, the skies of the United States on the morning of 9-11, four simultaneous or near simultaneous hijackings that, um, I, again, were asked to believe that because they turned off the transponders, they were just completely un, untrackable and no right. one was expecting any threat from inside the United States. And that's why NORAD, despite being on heightened alert um, with their war games that were going on on the morning of 9-11, were unable, to, uh, supposedly, in uh, war games that it should be pointed out included the exact um, scenario of hijack jet flying into New York. So, uh, so I, I we're asked to believe that those war games somehow didn't prepare NORAD enough for the possibility of hijackings taking place in the United States. Just, uh, I mean, on its face, 
a ridiculous cover that uh, that doesn't stand up to any scrutiny whatsoever. And of course, we should mm-hmm. keep in mind that the 9-11 Commission itself was even at one point contemplating bringing criminal charges against the Pentagon, members of the Pentagon that they knew and could prove had lied, deliberately lied about the Pentagon's response on that day. They ultimately didn't do so um, because obviously 9-11 Commission wasn't really there to to do any sort of prosecution to find anything of the truth it was there to cover it up so they did that Absolutely. job quite admirably unfortunately but yes i mean it i think this is really uh, at least has the potential to get uh, hopefully a few people scratching their heads about the the response that we didn't see on 9 11 that's right and they're also talking about the cell phones well everybody knows that at altitude you can't make a cell phone call really <laughs> i mean that's what they're saying now and so i think that's fascinating because you had pilots coming forward and saying well you know we can't above 5000 feet um well there's no tower within 5000 feet you cannot make a cell phone call even at 5000 feet uh so you don't have cell phone towers every uh um 5,000 feet, I believe, um, or you can at 5,000 feet, but not any higher than that. And so now they're pointing to the fact that those cell phones don't mean anything anyway at altitude at 30,000 feet. Nobody can make a call like that. So now we're getting back to that issue. Anyway, I wanted to also mention that um, uh, we had a a U.S. representative on our program, uh, Walter Jones from uh, North Carolina, And they're officially requesting a congressional resolution demanding Obama declassify the heavily redacted congressional investigative reports on 9-11. He told us that he was going to be doing that on his program uh, when he was on the program, and now they have done that. Um, It seems like they're going to be hopefully getting a response to that, and they're wanting the support of the people for this. But I think we're going to be getting to some issues that are going to cause some huge embarrassment. If it doesn't bring us back to the issue of martial law before that, so that they can just contain everybody as as is, so that being a huge distraction, and oh by the way, nobody knows or has even heard about the fact that we might be going to World War Three. That could be the end game of all of this. You know, let's talk about Ukraine because Ukraine and Crimea, uh, they want to go with Russia ninety seven percent. Do you think that that we should allow that, or do you think the United States should step in and say they have no right to do that? Ooh, maybe they should stand up for the three percent. Um, no. Um, uh, well, obviously, it's 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 a ridiculous hip- hypocritical situation that's developing. And just on that note of uh, of uh, Representative Jones and and that uh, that bill that you're talking about, I should mention that I think that this is one of the interesting booby traps that have been sort of implanted in the 9-11 narrative from the beginning, because we've known for for basically since the Congress released their report that the redacted section of that report is about Saudi Arabia and uh, the the U.S. government's uh, basically attempt to cover up Saudi's connections to the the 9-11 hijackings, given that 15 of the 19 supposed hijackers were supposedly Saudis anyway. So um, that's that's kind of been the, the little bit of information that's always been embedded. It's kind of the Michael Moore escape valve for 9-11 truth. Uh, Oh, well, we can admit that there was some Saudi involvement, but of course it will never ultimately come back to reflect on, I think, what was really going on on that day. But it is at least a step in the right direction of trying to uh, to bring attention back to this issue and let people know that they were lied to about 9-11. And uh, we'll just see how far that goes. But anyway, regarding the Ukraine, yes, obviously this is a, I mean, just a hypocrisy to the extreme. Okay, we'll get to, let's get to Ukraine after this break. We've got a four-minute break. We'll be back with James Corbett. Um, interestingly enough, A&E 
architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth are now starting their campaign in Canada this week. So I'm glad to see that on uh, exposing 9-11 Truth. And we're all for that. We'll be back after this four-minute break with James Corbett. Stay tuned. This is Joyce, Josh, and J.D. Welcome back to Power Hour. Thank you for joining us. 24 minutes after the hour. It's always such a pleasure to have James Corbett join us. And we try to squeeze in as much information as we can because he knows so much about everything. Uh, and I do appreciate his uh, insight on the financial issues, but also what is taking place in Ukraine. And we want to talk about that because the United States says you have no right to annex with Russia. You only got 97% of the vote, or they only got 97% of the vote. And yet the U.S. seems that we, seems to want to control that issue. And now we want to arm the people of Kiev. Uh, your thoughts on the actual election itself should we honor that election that happened yesterday well i don't see what what business it is of the international community to be pronouncing on this really i mean ultimately this is up to the people of crimea and whatever relationship they want to decide with russia or ukraine or how they want to negotiate that relationship and i realize that these types of elections can be done under conditions of duress etc that might not make them very valid and, and to be honest, I think the 97% number is a bit suspicious. I mean, that, that does sound like it has been boycotted by the opposition, although I would expect it to be a clear majority um, in Crimea that would be for this. I mean, if only because 60% percent of the the population of Crimea is ethnic Russian, and there's obviously strong uh, pro-Russian sentiment there. 97% sounds sounds like a very large number indeed, so I'm not sure if there has been some fiddling with that, but at any rate, I think that uh, that this again is not an issue for um, the United States to be be, uh, making a verdict on, especially in the way that they're attempting to put forward their criticism of it, which is to say that there uh, there is no uh, provision in the Ukrainian constitution to allow for a a single uh, entity within Ukraine to to vote for secession like this. Well, I I don't know if that uh, Ukrainian constitution that suddenly the U.S. is so concerned about has any of the uh, mechanisms for the uh, removal of Yanukovych from office that was done by the... uh, the neo-Nazis backed by the, the United States State Department uh, in recent months, uh, if, if that's yes. part of the Ukrainian constitution. So, I mean, it's just complete hypocrisy on its face. And it seems that this propaganda is working to some extent, according to new poll results. Apparently, there are more Americans uh, that view Russia as a threat, as, an, as a type of enemy, than have at any time since the end of the Cold War. So, uh, they, they keep talking about the new Cold War, and uh, perhaps just talking about it is bringing us uh, step-by-step into that reality, which is very, very worrying because, of course, uh, we do not want these types of military tensions because ultimately no one ends up winning when, when this type of military tension gets ratcheted up. Well, and certainly when they talk about Russia bad, Russia bad, and all the reasons why Russia's been bad in the past, and we know that, and we've all seen those grainy films of people going back and forth to the work camps. So we're scared of that, and we know that that's what he likes because he's from Russia. But we still have 56% of the people in this country that say no, uh, that they don't think that we need to get involved with the Ukrainian situation. And so what concerns me is this new executive order by the president saying uh, that they can, you know, attack, basically the government can come after anybody who doesn't agree with what they're doing in Ukraine. 
I mean, this has gotten ridiculous. It, uh, the provisions for seizure of property extend to any United States person. That means any United States citizen, permanent resident, alien, entity organized under the laws of the United States, or any jurisdiction within the U.S., or any person in the U.S. Uh, declaring a national emergency over the planned referendum in Crimea to determine whether or not to join Russia, the U.S. president asserts the asset seizure is possible for any U.S. person determined by the Secretary of Treasury in consultation with the Secretary of State. That's an incredibly broad, you can drive a gazillion 18-wheelers through that, that executive order. Uh, it, it is, I mean, uh, unfortunately, it's not surprising to anyone who knows the history of executive orders very much like this one. And of course, the similar provisions that have been um, used, for example, most famously in the NDAA 2012, the uh, National Defense Authorization Act, which allowed for basically anyone to be branded a, a, as an aide or, or supporter of any sort of any deemed terrorist organization to be thrown, uh, not, not just in jail, but to be taken into custody by the U.S. military, if need be, including U.S citizens anywhere in the world, including on U.S. soil. So once you have those types of uh, things being hardwired into law, executive orders like this are really just, uh, I suppose, icing on that particular cake of tyranny and uh, not not particularly different in kind. But it is nonetheless disturbing to be reading about that and all of the implications um, for that. And anyone who believes that the United States is still a free country only has to look at uh, at executive orders like that. But if, uh, if they are thinking of se- searching and seizing the property of any Anyone who's uh, who's uh, interfering in the, the situation in Ukraine, perhaps they should be looking at the U.S. State Department and, uh, of course, uh, the the assistant ambassador who was recently caught on tape, uh, well, helping to uh, engineer who the, the U.S. government wants in and out of the new interim government. I think that's I think that's pretty much meddling in the situation in Ukraine. I think that maybe that bears some investigation, but of course, this is not a world of reality and, uh, and anything resembling a sane universe. This is the world of foreign policy. I wonder why he lives in Japan. We'll be right back after this three-minute break with the Power Hour. Stay tuned. Thirty-three minutes after the hour. Thank you so much for joining us at the Power Hour today. It's all about the truth, and we appreciate your support at the Power Mall too. We have a lot of books on sale. And we have a lot of items on sale. Just ask for the clearance items when you call us at the Power Hour. Say no to meat is one of them. Um, also, Green Foods Bible. Those of you who have not read that, you will be convinced, absolutely convinced, that you have to have green foods in your diet. It's everything you need to know about barley grass, wheat grass, kamut, chlorella, and spirulina, a lot more than that. And it's normally $14. This is really one of the best books, and I do mean it's a Bible on green foods. It's now on sale for $11, and that's by David Sandoval. Clouded Titles, the book on uh, foreclosure, illegal foreclosure, on sale for $39.95. It's normally $49.95. And the Credit Restoration Primer, on sale for $35. Also, the Time Challenger is on special again, because Jerry... Peterman will be on the show tomorrow with along with Dr. Kakias, and uh, that is down to $55. The elderberry juice or cordial, if you buy two, you get a jelly free, and that's the elderberry jelly from uh, Columbia, near Columbia, Missouri. The only close to or almost or everything but certified organic uh, elderberry in this country. Now, if you get the other elderberry that is not this one, well, if you get the other elderberry, 
Brand X elderberry, let me just tell you, that has a lot of insecticides and pesticides in it. It comes from France. Also, Good Health Naturally on special, Topperson, Charcoal, and Iodorol are on special. And the Greenhouse Plans and the Fire Pit Plans are at the Power Mall because we're going to have Ron Kleinfelter on this week also. I want to mention The Body Heals. It's a book by Dr. William Farrell, an MD. This book is amazing. If you want to know how the body heals... He has so much physiology in this book. I think you'll be fascinated. And it's on sale for $36 at the Power Hour. 877-817-9829. Or go to thepowermall.com. The markets, uh, we're wanting to know what's happening with the markets. And we've got our guest today uh, with us. We'll get into that in just a few minutes. But talking about Ukraine... The sanctions, where we're going to go from here, the dollar. Um, what are your thoughts now that we are going to teach Putin a lesson? Well, obviously, I mean, anything along those lines, any any thinking along those lines is dangerous indeed, because as I say, this, the ratcheting up of military tensions never, ever works out in favor of the people that are supposedly being defended by this. I mean, as if the, the United right. States government is really acting in the best interests of the Ukrainian people here, as if that's even their, their business or their job to do so. Um, obviously, this is not about that. This is about lining the, uh, the the pockets of the military contractors that benefit from every increase of tensions at all times. And I think we should always keep that in mind so that we don't end up choosing sides in these types of uh, disputes. And I recently had a, a a podcast episode on this very subject that uh, just because I'm against what NATO is doing here doesn't mean that I'm for Putin. I don't think this is a two-sided uh, game. And uh, when we are asked to choose sides in a game like that, it ultimately takes away from our ability to say no to this this whole affair whatsoever. So I think we have to keep that in mind. But a, a couple of stories that throw the Ukraine uh, story into co- a different context from very different angles. Um, one of them being that, uh, well, if the United States is now going to start uh, threatening Putin and, uh, and Russia over this Crimean vote that just took place, perhaps they should be turning their attention to Italy, where a, uh, a vote ha- is currently ongoing right now in Venice as to whether Venice should break away from Rome and form its own republic, the Republic of Veneto. Um, Voting is happening right now. Um, There are 4 million people in the electorate in in Venice that are uh, uh, voting on this. 2 million are expected to turn out for this. So it is a significant vote. Um, And uh, supposedly, polls show that about two-thirds of Venetians are in favor of forming their own republic, as they were at one point for for a thousand years of their history. So so this is a pretty interesting um, thing that's happening right now. Even the Italian media isn't really a a reporting on this yet. Uh, I guess they're not taking it seriously. It's a non-legally binding vote at this point, but it is uh, obviously the first step in the formation of of some sort of republic. So an interesting little event. So we'll see if uh, if the... that's going to be perfect because the United States will need to intercede there also. Exactly, won't we? that's just going to say we'll That'll see if the hypocrisy out. holds or if they really are going to stick to this new um, this new idea that no, of course we're going to stick up for anyone who tries to secede from anyone anywhere at any time. Um, and we'll see what they can do in my home nat- home and native land of Canada about those Quebecers uh, threatening yeah. to secede every now and then. We'll see we'll see if yeah. we can uh, uphold this new standard of international law. So that's just one one tiny thing that show, throws a bit of perspective onto what's happening. Another thing is that while you weren't looking, while everyone was blinking in Ukraine, uh, uh, Russia has just gained an area twice the size of Crimea um, along their, their continental shelf on the Sea of Okhotsk, which I'm probably mispronouncing, but uh, this is part of the, the uh, what has traditionally been 
part of Russia's continental shelf on the Siberian landmass, but it has not been recognized as such under international law. So for the past 11, 12 years, uh, Russia has had a uh, uh, basically a resolution as in the UN uh, waiting approval by the UN Commission on the limits of the continental shelf. And yes, actually, such an agency does exist in the bureaucracy of the United Nations. And uh, apparently word has just come down that they've been successful. So now this continental shelf is going to be considered part of Russia's uh, territorial sovereignty. So all of the the resources along this continental shelf are now uh, going to accrue to Russia, Russia, and there are some significant oil and gas resources there. So it's, uh, again, that's, uh, while, while no one was looking, an area about the size of Holland and Belgium combined was just uh, annexed to Russia. And uh, that's, that's going to be, I think, pretty significant for the Russian economy in, in coming years. Yes, absolutely. Well, uh, as it stands now, the dip- diplomatic talks, they say they're breaking down. I don't know if they were ever anywhere to begin with, but Russia has pulled billions from the West. We're hearing that Bank Rossi is moving dollar holdings offshore. Is that accurate? Do you know? Have we uh, started? Has Russia started to remove its holdings? I haven't uh, confirmed any of this for myself yet. I'm still working on this, and uh, I have some leads on some stories that I'm going to be checking into. So hopefully, I'll have more on that in the coming days, and maybe I'll be writing about that in the International Forecaster this week. But certainly, I think Russia does have leverage to do some economic damage if they want to, and especially if these sanctions really start to hit home for Russia. I'm sure Russia can strike out uh, economically on. Their own, including, of course, that they are and have been for some time really the uh, the gas lifeline, as it were, for Europe, um, with a lot of that gas flowing through Ukraine. And they have shut off the gas before, and they could do so again. Uh, we're getting into the uh, springtime, and things are warming up, so it's not as big of a leverage as it has been um, throughout the winter. But certainly, it's something that they always have up their their sleeve. And obviously, also they they can affect uh, the the petrodollar, which of course is still the uh, the way that the U.S. dollar hegemony is maintained throughout the world, that all oil bourses, or at least the vast majority of them, are denominated in U.S. dollars. Russia still has leverage and uh, room to be able to affect that. So we'll see what they manage to pull out of their economic uh, bag of tricks if and when the, the sanctions start to hit home for Russia. But this is, again, I mean, this is just a very worrying sign that they're, they're starting to take this to the next level because sanctions really are a type of economic warfare. I mean, it's only warfare once removed from actual physical military involvement. So I don't think anyone really wants to see this uh, progressing any further. Right. uh, This is Josh. Uh, What do you think the results of, say, Russia and and possibly China dumping the the petrodollar for, like, say, a petrogold standard? Um, as far as over here in the U.S. First of all, what are the chances that that might happen? Yeah. And if that happened, what would be the result? Well, there have been For people, the U.S. economy. Right. Well, there have, there have I've written about and there have been ta- people talking about the eventual formation of a petro yuan from China and somehow over eclipsing the U.S. dollar. I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. Uh, petro gold um, scheme of some sort, perhaps that's workable. Um, but it, I, I, I'm not really sure about the feasibility of that in the near term, but uh, I I'm sure they're going to attempt to get off of the U.S. dollar if uh, if these sanctions hit home. If they do, I think that could have a pretty severe effect on 
on for for Americans um, as the purchasing power of the U.S. dollar would obviously be greatly reduced if there was a significant disruption to the uh, the demand for U.S. dollars around the world. I mean, this is the way that the U.S. Um, imperial uh, economy has chugged along for the past several decades is that there has been such demand for the U.S. dollar that the U.S. government has been able to underwrite basically any amount of debt they've ever wanted to put out, and that's how they financed their wars of aggression in U- in Iraq and elsewhere for the for the last uh, several decades. So um, that would undermine greatly their ability to do that and would potentially send um, interest rates a skyrocketing, which, of course, is the last the last cap, I think, on the on the real economic collapse that we've been looking at and, and uh, foreseeing for some time now. Um, they've been able to forestall that by being able to keep the interest rates artificially low by buying up basically U.S. treasuries through the quantitative easing program. But um, uh, uh, if the market really fell out for any sort of any foreign or commercial buyers of U.S. treasuries, I think that might be the uh, the end of the music in the game of musical chairs that we're playing right now. And that wouldn't be a good thing for, for basically, again, for, for almost anyone who's uh, probably listening to this, for the average person. That's not a not something that you want to hear because uh, the U.S. economy is, is in a pretty precarious situation as it is, but uh, it is surviving on a lot of that hopium that uh that barack obama has brought uh to the markets in the last several years (laughs) that is uh, so good that is so good well uh jim sinclair says that russia can collapse the u.s economy and he says that silver is gold on steroids do you agree with that I agree that silver does have some a remarkable upside potential. Um, as we are looking at uh, gold manipulation again, at some point it is going to stop working to the extent that it's worked before, especially if and when uh, the COMEX starts uh, stops being able to deliver, to make physical deliveries on the gold that's demanded of it. Um, I think we're going to look at th- that being the real breaking point at which gold manipulation stops having the effect it, that it does and gold returns to the levels we would expect it to be at. Um, and as that happens, obviously the silver uh, markets would uh, would also return to something approaching normality, and normality is a uh, gold to silver ratio of something like fifteen to one. But we have seen that detach in recent years, so that the gold silver ratio is uh, is much higher at the moment, and so silver has a, a much higher upside potential at this point than gold just in terms of the uh the what we're looking at and uh when and if the manipulation stops uh, stops working so i i agree with that assessment i think that uh silver might be the new gold and of course silver is is much easier for the average person to get investing in as it is a much more um uh, available price point so um i don't think you could go wrong with um, trying to put some of your safe money into silver to try to protect it as we go through some very uncertain economic times. Are you willing to speculate on, say, if uh, Russia or China does you know, do something or stop trading oil for dollars, uh, are you willing to speculate on, say, price of gold or silver at that point, what it would do? Again, there's so many different ways that it can play out, and it depends, I, I think, on how it uh, how it does play out. But I've heard, for example, um, people saying that we should be seeing gold at 2100 and then going up to 2900 by the end of the year. Um, I think that would be on the safe side of things if the if the controls really came off, if the uh, if the ability to manipulate the markets really came off. I would say that we'd be looking at least at that range, um, and presumably, I, I think, in the long run, quite quite a bit higher. Um, and different calculations have been made in different years by different people based on different estimates of how much um, outstanding 
claims on gold there are as opposed to how much actual physical gold there is and that that uh, the number of 100 to 1 in terms of 100 ounces of paper gold for every one ounce of actual physical gold has been floated. And based on that, we could look at a price of anywhere from 5000 to as much as $50,000 per ounce. But again, that's that's just, uh, we'll have to see how that plays out. $50,000 It has been ounce. suggested okay. that that would be the, a more realistic price for gold if, uh, if it... I will <laughs> quote you. I'll put that prediction oh, down. Please, <laughs> please don't say that's myself, but yes. <laughs> Uh, James, I was curious about what's going on in Venezuela right now. What you think maybe the economic impact of, of recent developments down there might be on the gold and silver market? You know, to, to be honest, I haven't been following Venezuela uh, closely enough to be able to comment on the situation politically or um, to really look at, at how that, that's affecting the, the South American economy. But I did catch a, uh, a story recently that uh, Cuba is now preparing for energy disruptions because of the Venezuelan um, uh, violence and, and political turmoil that's going on right now. Obviously, the Venezuela-Cuba link that has been in place throughout the uh, Chavez era and now cons- uh, continuing into the Marjoro era um, uh, has, is basically under threat um, now that Venezuela finds itself embroiled in all this turmoil. So so that's going to be significant for there. As as to how this is going to affect gold or, or silver markets, I'm not really sure about that connection directly. And again, I haven't really been following the story closely enough to comment on on sort of the political situation there. But it does, again, look like the a lot of these uh, protests are being sponsored from the outside for people who have a vested interest in seeing the, the, uh, the basically the return of Venezuela to a pre Chavez type uh, condition yes. and I, I'm no fan of Chavez or what he did to the country but then again I'm not necessarily a fan of the manipulations that are taking place to basically make Venezuela safe for safe for democracy as they would say but uh, really safe for <laughs> uh, for you know the um, United Fruit Company or it's uh, it's uh, ideological descendants in our own day and age for people who know I mean the United Fruit Company was what uh, uh, Smedley Butler was was talking about in his war as a racket uh, uh, book back in the 19. 19- 30s, I believe that was when mm-hmm. he was giving that speech. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I, the more things change, the more they remain the same. And unfortunately, it's the same types of corporate interests that are, are really helping to uh, to destabilize um, South America, as as has been going on again for for a century at least. Well, you know, they uh, mentioned on the um, incredible CNN news today that. Uh, um, they don't have, they're leaderless down there in their ability to take their issue forward. You know, they got streets full of people. I mean, streets full of people, but they don't have a leader. So it was kind of like, gee, they don't have a leader. We might need to provide them one. So I kind of see that in the, uh, uh, in the cards also. One thing I want to say, I want to commend you on is the um, Errol Morris, the uh, new documentary on Donald, Ru- Donald Rumsfeld that you did, uh, internationalforecaster.com. That I think we need to go back and kind of review the kingmakers like you did in that article with Rumsfeld. Would you mind kind of reminding people about that? I think that is just absolutely amazing, the information you have there. Uh, Talking about Rumsfeld specifically? Well, talking about how he's been behind the B-1 bomber. uh, You know, he's been behind, you know, providing North Korea with, uh, you know, with their uh, nuclear power, whatever. Yes. So so I I recently I wrote um, uh, an article about J.P. Morgan, who is an exceptionally important part of American history that uh, that a lot of people don't know about. I'm talking about actual John Pierpont Morgan, not the not the bank that bears his name. Um, And so uh, as a lead into that, I was writing about Rumsfeld as as one example of someone in our own era who who has been one of those those very key, I, I, I call them super gophers for the elite. Um, I don't think he's actually some sort of string puller who's really making decisions, but he certainly 
basically every time you turn over a rock and find uh, in this new world order landscape you find him uh, crawling around underneath it and uh, and yes the number of things he's been involved in is quite amazing when you really look at his the span of his career from being the youngest defense secretary to the oldest defense secretary and uh, in the, fir- the 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 former um, term as defense secretary he was involved as you say in the development of the B1 bomber for example in his latter term of course he was involved in Iraq and Afghanistan he was president of uh, Searle and Company when they were getting aspartame approved and then sold to Monsanto. He was head of a a, a Swiss construction company that was uh, doing deals with North Korea for their nuclear reactor. It goes on and on. Unbelievable. That's the guy. We'll be back after this. Three minute break. Stay tuned to the Power Hour. James Corbett is our guest. CorbettReport.com Welcome back to Power Hour. Thank you for joining us. It is all about the truth. And boy, it's getting harder to find. 54 minutes after the hour. Thank you so much for joining us today. We uh, really enjoy when we've got James Corbett here. And we respect his time and his information and appreciate the fact that he uh, agrees to stay up till O-Dark 30 uh, in Japan to be on this show. So thank you very much, James, for that. Uh, In this next hour, we're going to have Jeff Berwick on, who is a promoter and supporter of Bitcoin. Just was wondering if you've had any thoughts pro or con on Bitcoin uh, since the uh, uh, the theft of uh, lots of Bitcoins? Well, to be honest, at the time I stated that it was a kind of make or break for Bitcoin, um, not necessarily in terms of the, the, the protocol itself, which wasn't affected by the collapse of the, the Mt. Gox exchange here in Japan, but in terms of public perception and how the markets kind of reacted to that. And really the, the price of Bitcoin has maintained and stabilized at the $600 level, which is still, um, it's, it's off, it's about half, half of its, uh, all time high at 1200, but still quite, uh, quite strong and certainly shows no sign of, of any major, um, uh, tanking in that respect. So I think that, uh, really Bitcoin has once again proven itself. And a lot of the, uh, the people who've held on to it have proven the naysayers wrong that this was the end of Bitcoin as we know it. So I think it really has shown itself to be, um, quite versatile. And, uh, I am, Uh, I'm still cautious about it. I certainly wouldn't recommend people putting their life savings into it. But as, again, as one potential place um, to put your money that's outside of the fiat-controlled, debt-created bankster funny money that is coming out of the Federal Reserve, it is at least one one option among many that I think people should be looking into. So um, so I'm, you know, I'm quietly optimistic about this. If I offered you $1,400, would you go buy gold, Bitcoin or Apple stock? <laughs> I'm going to go with the gold. <laughs> and you asked me that again. Uh, you asked me that uh, um, right after this Mt. Gox collapse. I went with the gold at that time oh. as well. I would still go for right. the gold. But uh, if I could split it up, maybe I'd buy half an ounce of gold and put the rest in Bitcoin or split it up some other way. But I, uh, one thing I would never touch is Apple stock. <laughs> really? Oh, yes. Interesting. No. Well, again, I, I, I make that uh, as an ethical decision more so than an economic one, although I do think that the Apple stock is overpriced, economically speaking. But um, I would just never, ever support a corporation that is part of the, the enslavement grid that's going into place, electronically speaking, and um, that is mm-hmm. so obviously in cooperation with the national security apparatus in general. I don't want to give my money to them, and I never would. And I don't Good think that other people should. Good point. Let's talk about Fukushima. What is happening there now? What are you hearing from the powers that be and also the people? 
Well, uh, it's just past the three-year anniversary mark, so we did see some some commemoration of that here in Japan, although I think the commemorations have been more subdued, and as have the protests. There was a protest in Tokyo, I believe it was on 311 itself, um, that only managed to draw about 5,000 people, which is still considerable for an anti-nuclear campaign. However, um, definitely nowhere near the tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands, depending on who you want to believe, that were uh, turning out uh, in last summer and the summer before that in, in the mass protests we were seeing. So I think there might be some wind going out of the sails of the anti-nuclear movement here in Japan as the Abe government really turns its back on previous promises of previous governments here that they were going to try to eliminate nuclear power. Now it looks like they're going 100% um, full steam ahead with turning on the reactors, um, perhaps starting even as soon as this summer. So, um, so some of the uh, uh, for those who don't know, Japan has about 50, I believe it's 51. I've really got to look that number up. About 51 nuclear reactors that uh, have been offline since that disaster because uh, basically they've been taken off for maintenance and they haven't been put back online um, until the new safety standards, etc., are put into place. But it looks like Abe is going to go ahead with starting that that process of turning those reactors back on and Japan is going to be relying on nuclear power once again. So it's a very uh, concerning thing for people here in Japan, of course, and uh, and there's more information coming out about the cover-up of radiation readings. People can read about that on FukushimaUpdate.com. Yes, FukushimaUpdate.com. We'll be back after this one-minute, 10-second break. Final segment with James Corbett. If you have a question you'd like to ask him, 855-995-6923. Welcome back to Power Hour. Thank you for joining us, Caring About Your World. We're talking to James Corbett today. The subject of uh, Fukushima, he's in Japan. And I have to wonder how many people there know, at least what we're told over here, that things are really bad in the prefecture at Fukushima. Do they understand that or are they whitewashing the story of the radiation? Well, I think that the 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 main mainstream news here obviously is participating in in the whitewashing to a large extent, and um, there's even been some examples of uh, of news anchors, etc., who spoke out against it, who found themselves out of a job very quickly. So cer- certainly that cover up does take place. There has been some good reporting that's come out of some of the the newspapers here. But, uh, but a lot of it still is being repressed. But I think that the Japanese public, I do give them credit for understanding that. However, it's a question of whether they're willing to stand up against that. And unfortunately, as I say, it looks like the political momentum behind the anti-nuclear movement is starting to fade a little bit. But uh, I think everyone understands that the situation there is still quite dire. And it is still covered on the news here. They don't try to cover it up. I mean, they still do talk about it. It's just that they don't necessarily tell um, the full story of what's happening there. Do you, uh, surely you, you, you mentioned earlier that you don't eat fi- uh, sushi, but what about the other food in Japan that's not, that's grown there, not brought in? Are you concerned about that? Well, I am. Um, uh, it, certainly in the months right after the uh, disaster, the, we were looking at uh, the, the, the leafy vegetables as being um, part of the, the problem of potential contamination and then going to the root vegetables later in the year. And uh, since that time, obviously, I mean, the, the issue of rice being grown in this highly radioactive in, uh, uh, area of, of, of Japan that is an actual an agricultural 
uh, area it's it's there's a lot of farming that goes on there is obviously a concern um, that's why my again for myself and my, my family we do source our food primarily through a uh, green cooperative here that um, uses only organic ingredients lists the exact place where all of the ingredients are coming from and does radiation testing that they uh, post on their website of all of the foods that they provide so there are ways to to be safer about what you're eating here but I uh, certainly I have to look um, quizzically at some of the foods that you get for example in the restaurants here that you don't really know where those ingredients are coming from and uh, in fact there's one popular fast food restaurant here serving I guess the Japanese equivalent of uh, of, uh, burger and fries which is beef on rice and uh, and that particular restaurant chain has decided as a way of supporting Fukushima to source all of their rice from Fukushima so obviously we definitely avoid that restaurant at all costs but unfortunately that's the type of thing that can happen and uh doesn't seem like a lot of people here are concerned about that certainly i still see that uh that a lot of people flocking to that restaurant on a daily basis so uh, that's crazy uh, that's like the u.s military uh the government gave the uh shrimp from uh, the bp uh Deepwater horizon disaster gave it all to the military right after that occurred you know because it was so safe we'll we'll uh, feed our military with it Exactly. So all the shrimp went to them. Just incredible. Just absolutely incredible. They don't care. Um, do you hear people talking about it, worried about it as you go to the grocery store? I mean, are people aware? Not nearly as much as you might expect. Um, that's really? the disappointing part. And I, I, I believe this to be part of the disconnect in Japanese society between what people think about and what they talk with their family and close friends and what they'll say in public. I think that there is that kind of disconnect that goes on in Japan. So I'm hoping that that's the reason why you don't see or hear so much about it in public. Um, I'm hoping it's not just apathy or ignorance on the part of the public, but unfortunately I'm sure there's a lot of that mixed in there as well, especially with all the distraction and obfuscation that goes on in the mainstream media here. So so yes, um, not ne- nearly as much conversation about it, uh, certainly at least in my part of the country, maybe more so um, in closer to the Fukushima region but uh, still it's it's kind of worrying the fact that people um, seem to be going about their daily lives and continuing to uh, support uh, Fukushima by buying their produce etc it's amazing absolutely amazing well we'll continue to uh, watch what happens around the world and also watch those ships as they go around in a tight circle I don't know if you've seen that or not the file film where they go around in a tight circle and everybody's looking toward the center I mean they're looking everywhere now besides North Dakota for that uh, aircraft And uh, we appreciate you very much, James Corbett, for joining us today on the Power Hour. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on, Joyce. Always a pleasure. You have a blessed evening. We'll be back after this three-minute... 